Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, episode 11, everything you need to know about EB-5. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today our guest, Carolyn Lee, is one of the top immigration attorneys in the country. Listen, you'll find out why, especially at the end when she talks about the low returns that EB-5 investors are looking for. Today, we welcome Carolyn Lee. She's one of the top immigration attorneys in the country and specializes in EB-5. Carolyn, welcome on. Thanks so much, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So can you give our audience a, a little bit of background about yourself and maybe what the EB-5 program is for those who aren't aware of it? Sure. I'll give that a shot. I am, as Jim said, an, an immigration lawyer, and I do pretty much exclusively EB-5 visas, which would lead to the second part of his intro request. So EB-5 visas are green card visas, immigrant visas, and um, they are based on a very specific criteria for issuing the visa. The criteria are that the foreign immigrant investor, the visa is issued to an investor and his qualifying family members, the investor has to make an investment into a U.S. company the investment has to meet a certain threshold. Currently, it's $500,000 if it's in a targeted employment area, uh, and it's a million dollars if it's not. Targeted employment areas mean that it's an area that's a rural area defined as low population density, 20,000 or fewer in a city or town. Or it can be a high unemployment area that's in a more urban area. And a high unemployment TEA is an area that has 150% of the national average unemployment rate. Now, this is a, a pretty important time in my field right now in EB-5 visas because that investment amount that I just mentioned, the 500K for TEAs and a million for non-TEAs, is about to change imminently in November, November 21. Um, after that date, the investment amounts will go up substantially, 900K for TEAs and 1.8 million for non-TEAs. And the TEA definitions are also being changed so that the project, where the project is located, it's um, in a, let's say it's in a particular census tract. If it qualifies on its own by virtue of having 150% grade, if it doesn't, it can use the weighted average of the census tracts that touch it. Mm. That's it. That's a fantastic overview. And that has got to be a huge change to the B5 program with almost doubling the minimum investment required. So like at a higher level, correct me if I'm wrong, but just so the audience understands, from the applicant's perspective, an EB-5 program, the investment would give their whole family uh, visas if they're under 21, right? If the project is goes successful and is completed and it meets all those requirements. From the sponsor's standpoint, what are some of the benefits of going after EB-5 capital versus some of your more traditional equity or debt routes? Right. The, the primary advantage is that it's cheaper. And so EB-5 gained prominence from being kind of a small, under-the-radar visa program and a capital program 
to being really on its way to becoming what it's now during the debt crisis around 2008, when developers were looking for other sources of capital. And they found it and the program grew because immigrant investors were satisfied with um, much, much, much lower rates of return. Because for them, the real bang for the buck is ultimately the green card. Yeah. And I should mention the other the other requirement in addition to the investment is the job creation. So Congress wanted this program to not only be about investment, but also about job creation. So for each investor, there has to be 10 U.S. jobs created as a result of the investment. Yeah, I'm certain that a lot of folks see it initially and say, oh, wow. 900 or a million eight, that doesn't seem like that big of an investment to get citizenship. But like you just said, this primarily is a step they need to solve to get it done. So how do folks, like a lot of real estate investments don't always, you know, encompass the 10, 10 employees. So what do folks usually look at? Yeah, great question. So Congress modified the EB-5 program in 1992 by creating the regional center program, which is the aspect of EB-5 that's really dominantly used today. And investors who invest through the regional center program, which means that it's got to go through a regional center that's been approved and designated by USCIS as such, by showing that it would promote economic growth in a particular geographic area in the United States, that the job creation requirement can be satisfied by showing indirect job creation. And what's indirect job creation? It's job creation projected using economic methodologies by economists. So, you know, when governments are typically trying to evaluate whether or not they should undertake a large-scale project, you know, what what are the benefits of a project like that? They would use economists who would use various economic methodology that actually have roots in being developed by the U.S. government, like Implan and RIMS2, to say, okay, if we put in X amount of dollars into this particular geographic area, what's the output? How many jobs are going to be created? And what are the other favorable economic impacts to the region? So USCIS allows those kinds of calculations to show the indirect job creation from a particular project. Now, those calculations are, do you work with someone else to help along those matters? Or can you handle all that on your own for for individuals for this program? That's another great question. It is definitely a team effort with uh, particularly with regional center EB-5 cases because of that indirect job creation calculation component. So I'm actually very careful when I engage clients on the project side and on the investor side. And I I say, um, and, and in my written engagement, I'm only going to help you with U.S. immigration laws applicable to what we're doing for you. This is going to involve securities laws. This is going to involve, you know, transactions. And so there are transactional counsel involved. There, there may be tax implications for you. And certainly, I am not going to be the one running these calculations. I will review those calculations because I know USCIS's rules and policy regarding what they look for and what they, for example, 
if a construction phase of a real estate project is less than two years, by USCIS policy, the direct jobs will not count. And this just goes to the economic modeling, and these these are terms of art. There are direct jobs, indirect jobs, and induced. And we don't have to get into the weeds of that unless you want to, but USCIS policy is you can't count the direct jobs if if it's under two years. And, and an economist might not know that. So that's, that's the kind of, you know, that's the place where I would come in, but I don't run the numbers myself. Right. But you're very knowledgeable on the subject, obviously. And I guess it's cool that you can look at a plan or look at a proposal, I'm sure, and say, yeah, this looks pretty good, but this doesn't work out right now. So is that a, is that a point where you send them back and try and rethink the program or just kind of say, hey, maybe look for another project? How does how can you help in that process? That is also a really great question. At the end of the day, it's about in terms of what USCIS is looking for, the agency is looking for the feasibility of this entire job creation plan. You know, is this really going to happen? And, and they're interested in asking that question because they want to be assured, reasonably assured, that there is going to be job creation at the end of the day as a result of the capital going into this project. So the way they do that is they ask, well, you know, so this is a real estate project. So are all the permits in place? This is a real estate project and it's a $60 million endeavor and you're going to raise $20 million in EB-5. So are the, where's the other $40 million? Who's coming? Are they in place? Are they secured? Who's responsible for other pieces of the capital stack? So, and then, so, you know, as an immigration lawyer, I am looking for those, you know, those indicators of feasibility that I know USCIS is going to be looking for. And then, you know, but in terms of the, um, the overall, in terms of the more nitty gritty aspects of it, for example, an appraisal. You know, typically a real estate deal is going to have an appraisal associated with it, maybe requested by a senior lender. And I would not be able to evaluate whether or not that appraisal is market, whether it did use proper methodology. And, you know, I, I will point out that some years ago, there was a very prominent fraud case based in Chicago. And it was based on the, an appraisal being wildly, wildly off. And, you know, a number of professional advisors, not me, but a number of professional advisors were involved in that. And they were not able to pick that out. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't until later that SEC got involved. And then people looked at everything, you know, in hindsight and saw that that was not, that was not proper. That makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you've got enough things you're, you're watching and carrying, I can totally see where it'd be impossible for someone that's, and you're not really, I'm assuming you're not geared towards values of real estate in Chicago. So it would be something that could easily be overlooked. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and to that point, you know, I think one of the things that we need in the EB-5 program, you know, this is, there's an immigration benefit that's being conferred in exchange for job creation and capital. And there have been instances of, of fraud that are prominently reported in the media. And I know as somebody in this industry, um, deeply in this industry, that 
there isn't more fraud in EB-5 capital market than in other markets because the SEC director testified to that before Congress. But that doesn't mean that we're satisfied with that. We shouldn't be. And we need better controls to minimize that from happening. And it, it requires a lot of thinking and engineering. Okay. One more question, and I'm trying not to get too specific, but I think it's important probably for folks that might have interest in the program or want to understand it. We talked a little bit about the preliminary planning, the budgeting, and the appraisal. As you know, in any real estate world, the one constant is real estate is not constant. Things change over time. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure this process can take a year or two just to get everything dialed in. I mean, a larger project requires a lot of time. Are folks allowed to pivot at all? Like if, like, for example, if we have a plan that, hey, this is going to work, this is going to employ 10 people, this project's going to be a great project. Two years from now, you're trying to get it off the ground. You're like, oh, wait, this isn't the way to do it now. The market shifted. We want to pivot yep. to this. Yes. You, you are just hitting these excellent questions out of the park. That is such an excellent and important question in, um, in, in EB-5 and in investing generally, I would imagine. USCIS um, has trouble dealing with those changes because it's not an agency that it's not an agency of commerce or business transactions. It's a U.S. It's an immigration agency. So, it, the core competency of the examiners and of the agency itself is is not with you know understanding and the life cycle of a business and and the businesses need to react and adapt to changes. So, and in fact, the policy that it has is that if there is a material change to a a business plan, to a project, that that would be an occasion to, that would result in immigration failure of the investors unless they have progressed far enough along in their immigration process. So the short answer is that the pivoting can be very problematic, and even if it's for very good reasons. Now, as counsel to projects and investors who sometimes do encounter those needs to pivot, you know, there are ways to get the facts of that story out and present it to USCIS so that we can get them to view these facts favorably because material change isn't defined. There is um, discretion within the agency to, to be persuaded that those changes may not be. So we look for, you know, what, what were the causes of the change? Were there efforts to mitigate? And, and, you know, the effort is to try to present these changes to USCIS as not being about fraud, shouldn't be concerned about these changes, on track for job creation and looking for the good facts to be able to tease out and present. Okay. That's beautiful. Can you talk about, I'm sure you've seen a lot of different projects go really well. Some of them maybe didn't meet the targets they're shooting for. Can you talk about what types of real estate are ideal candidates for raising EB-5 capital? It seems like hotels are an obvious good choice for job creation, but what are some of the other types of real estate that you've seen work out really well and be, have a successful project? Yeah, real estate generally, the types of uses that have successfully used EB-5 have included hotels. Yes, absolutely. And casinos. Also residential, single multi-family residential units. 
because the construction model uh, works very well with EB-5. Because it's also, the, the evidence is pretty standard. And if it's presented well, it can be verified by reliable third parties, such as engineers, contractors, construction monitors, to show USCIS, okay, look at this is the developer's budget to put this you know, multi-family dwelling project in this area. Um, and it's, they, they bidded for it, and they have a GMAX contract in place, kind of showing that the budget was market and that they have secured the builders who are going to get the construction going that you will want to include with that not only those kinds of construction contracts, builders contracts, but also architects agreements. You are going to have in place permits that are, you know show that this project is is shovel ready. You're going to show the financing in place. The financing now will often involve senior lenders, so USCIS and and the investor market. Uh, we'll know that there's been additional level of due diligence on the project. Somebody else has also found the project viable and the numbers reasonable. So uh, the construction model works very, very well. And those numbers that have been verified that USCIS and investors can see others have, have looked at and verified as well, they go in nicely into the job creation model which uses various categories of expenditures like construction. There's, there's, an, there's a category of expenditure for, for construction and you put the dollar amount and, and you have to do some things like deflating it to match the, the, the study year, the model year. And then so you, you, put, you plug that input in into the model with that category of cost and you, it spits out the output of jobs. So it's, it's very transparent, and so that works very well for USCIS. So I would say hotels have been very popular, but in addition to hotels, I've done residential, office, shopping malls. Um, I've done non-traditional real estate as well, for example, development of, of oil fields. So it's a versatile tool. And the key is, you know, what are the objective pieces of evidence you can show to USCIS to show that this is, other people have looked at it, it's good, it's sound, and job creation is likely. Wow. I didn't realize that you could have such diverse projects through the EB-5 funding. Can you talk a little bit about, from the sponsor, the the U.S.-based like real estate investor's point of view, um, what is the process of raising capital for an EB-5 project look like? Do they need to have the land already secured and all of those um, agreements and bids and appraisal and bank connections already? Can you talk through a little bit about what that process looks like? Sure. So the process, I would say, has different phases. The first part of the process would be getting the project together and then documenting it for USCIS. So that would involve acquiring the land and the permits and all of that. And I can talk a, a bit more about that because I think that would be relevant to your audience. And then the second part of it is actually getting the investors who are going to buy interest in it and it, for the purpose of getting green cards. And so the, the marketing is yet a whole other art and part of this. 
and it it has various challenges at this moment, not unnavigable, but is a is a special time in EB five because we're at a pivot point ourselves in, in the EB five space. Coming back to the process of setting up a real estate deal for EB five, the question was, well, do we have to have the land in place and all the there is, you won't find anything in the books that say, that give you a checklist of what you need to have in hand before you're ready to file with USCIS. Because it's all about feasibility of job creation. That's what you're going to find on the books. So it's about how closely can I get to, to proving mere certitude so have I filed projects where the permits were pending and not yet in hand? Yeah, because sometimes that's when a project has to launch. But is that as good as when a permit is in hand? No. But, you know, even if you don't have a permit in hand in that example, maybe you've got all these other things. You know, in this particular jurisdiction, the permitting process takes so long. And here are the people, here are the experts that and professionals we've hired to help us with the permitting process. We've cleared steps one, two, three, and four, and there's just a fifth piece that's left. You know, or maybe in another deal, I have all the permits in place, but we don't have all the financing pieces in place. Well, is that as good as a deal where I've got all the permits and, you know, the capital stack completely locked up? No. But does that, is the client always able to wait for all of those pieces? No. So then you go forward. And what you want to do when you are in a position where not every single piece that you would want ideally is in place is you kind of look at the totality of everything. So if I, even if I don't have this piece, I've got these other pieces. And those are the pieces that you want to highlight. And, you know, you want, you want to advise your client and the developer, the client developer or the fund manager who's putting the deal together. Look, USCIS could zero in on that and ask for, you know, that secured commitment from your construction lender. And so just be ready for that. And, and what's your timing for that? I mean, are you in the bidding process for that? And do you foresee problems with getting that? And is it going to be in place in, in a matter of weeks or months? Because, you know, if USCIS does focus on it, we might get that request in a few months. So we, we need to, you know, we want to be reasonably sure that we're going to have it in hand to be able to respond. That's great. And like going back like a little bit even earlier, if let's say like I have a real estate project I'm interested in putting together, who should I consult with? Do I go to a regional center? Do I go to an immigration attorney? Or is there someone with a specific experience or skill set who can help explain like, hey, here's all the pieces you need and then like walk through the project together? Yeah, this might be a bias on my part, yeah. but I think, I think it's a good idea. It's good to start with an immigration attorney who has experience because I think that professional is going to be in a position to sort of evaluate how ready you are is how I would put it. Sometimes, you know, I would get on a phone call with somebody who's interested or a group who's interested in EB-5, and it's pretty clear that it's very exploratory. They're not really sure they need it or want it, and they just want more information. Well, then, you know, and a council with experience is kind of the perfect spot to have landed on to just kind of get the overview of the land and what the process entails and and all of that. And then other times I might get a phone call from, from a group that's very well advanced. They've done their homework and 
They even know that they are, you know, they're sure that they want to affiliate with a regional center. They're not sure whether they should form their own regional center. So the conversation can, you know, start at a deeper level. But there are still choices that, you know, that need to be evaluated and made. And experienced counsel would be in a position to say, you know, you have these pieces. Those are good. You would want these other pieces in place if you wanted to move forward. Here are some other options that if you are if you are certain that you wanted to go forward with EB5 and it sounds like you're ready to do that, here are some of the other things that you can do while the the formal process is cooking and, and the like. That's a then I think that's definitely right. Is get seek counsel. It sounds like immigration attorney is the place to start. And can you talk a little bit about once you've got the project together and everything looks good from the attorney standpoint. Um, you probably have a regional center lined up. What does it look like in actually raising capital and getting investors to invest in the project? Um, how is that done? Because I assume that many of the investors aren't currently living in the U.S., so they're probably living out of the country. How do you market to them, find them? Do you need current relationships with them, or how does that work? That's the whole kind of you know, key to a successful raise is, you know, how how good is your marketing effort? Sometimes for smaller scale projects, the clients will have relationships already. And, and you know, it could come from, it could, it could be family relationships, it could be business associations, it could be suppliers. And so the relationships are there and they're forming the project. And so then it's, then the, the counseling is about, well, how do we marry the, the two up in a successful venture? Other times the client or the developer will have the project or in some stage of it, but no sense of, you know, well, where are these investors going to come from? And in that scenario, I would say that this is a challenging time in EB-5 because traditionally, or I should say for the last few years, the dominant market for investors in EB-5 um, has been China. And there was a marketing infrastructure there. It was based on relationships with brokers. And so um, if you had a project of a scale, and I think smaller projects actually had more difficulty uh, promoting and selling in China, then you would be able to try to market your project to the more established promoters and see if you can get a nibble and that would be, and if you're successful in doing that, then that would be your pipeline to your investors. Well, we have a very, very long visa backlog for Chinese investors. So projects now are needing to be more nimble and go to other markets, South America, Brazil, other markets, other markets in Asia, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, India, Vietnam, the Philippines. And because the marketing infrastructure is not as well established in those areas, it's more of, if you don't have those pre-existing relationships, then it is more of legwork and footwork getting in there. It can involve attending trade conferences, meeting, laying the groundwork, and then, you know, getting the time and space to talk about your project all of which requires a lot of time and effort Mm. and in a time when projects are also um, getting smaller. So I think that it's more challenging. You do have to be more nimble 
than I think uh, one had to be some years ago, but I think it can still be done pretty successfully. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very, I mean, that's spot on for the real estate market right now is, or just the market in general, things are pretty hot. So if it's hard to have a plan with that much flexibility, if that makes sense, or where you can have that much time, as you said, to, to go find that funding. It's kind of like if folks want something done very quickly now, as far as buyers and sellers. So I, I totally get your point where if you don't have a flexibility in project from a timeline standpoint, it's going to be tough to get it done. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think to that point, I think people have to think more long-term now. So if you have a deal that you're, you're, you know, everything is, is in the building stage right now, or it's right up, you know, you're about to break ground. Now is probably not the time to do a deep dive in EB-5, but now might be the perfect time to start learning more about EB-5. And then you might decide in the course of that process that, yeah, this makes sense for our group and we should, we should learn more about it learn more about it. And then the, there might be a time when you say, absolutely, this is going, this is a good fit for us. And then it's going to be about laying the foundation and building the relationships. So, you know, that's, that's all probably an effort that's going to take it at least a year, probably closer to two. Yeah. That's great. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how EB-5, that immigration program, compares to some of the other programs available to non-U.S. citizens? Like, I know there's like the L-1 foreign manager, which I think mm-hmm. has like recently gotten more popular from some of my friends have told me about it. It might be like faster. Can you talk a little bit about how EB-5 compares to the other ones and why applicants might steer towards an EB-5 program instead? Yeah, great question. So the the key attraction for EB-5, or one of the key attractions for EB-5, is that um, people with wealth can use the EB-5 program to make investments, and they don't have to be actively managing those investments or be working, employed um, with any particular company. Most of the other visas that are in in the employment-based category, like the L, require a work relationship, an employer-employee relationship. So that's, that's one key distinction. In terms of what the other visa requirements are for those other categories, um, there is an increase in interest in L1s and in the green card companion to the L1, the EB13. These are for intracompany transferees or multinational managers. And what that requires, those the L is the temporary side to the EB-13. The EB-13 would give you a green card. The L-1 would allow you to come in and temporarily work under that visa category. They're very similar in requirements. And the requirement there basically is that you are coming, you, the foreign national, are coming into the United States to assume a managerial executive or supervisory position for a company. And you have to have worked in that capacity for the foreign affiliate of that U.S. employer who is sponsoring you. So it requires that you know, pre-existing qualifying relationship between the foreign entity and the U.S. employing company. And it requires the foreign national to have worked for the um, company abroad for at least a year. So there are those other requirements as well, whereas with EB-5, 
there's no prior work history, no work affiliation requirement like that. There are other requirements. There's suitability requirements, but not, you know, work specific sure. requirements. Yeah. So it, it sounds like it's a lot less hands on that you have to be in the business if I'm hearing Correct. it right. Okay. That's right. That's fantastic. Can you talk about like some of the mistakes you've seen that investors and applicants should avoid or be aware of towards the beginning that you've just experienced? Yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a complex program and it's, you know, when an investor is presented with uh, which project, which regional center project am I going to go into? It's not an enviable position. I don't think because they're going to be presented with stacks of papers and they're, and they're legalese. Some clients, some investor clients actually have been in real estate, so they can evaluate a business plan and all of those attachments and, you know, the construction contracts and the timelines and everything and, and make sense of it commercially. Most investors can't. And I would say another challenge is there, you would think that in this space that there you know, would be a, an, an established cottage industry of investment advisors who can help an investor right. kind of sort through all that paper. But there really isn't. And there are some providers, but there hasn't been this you know, robust layer of professionals that, that's developed. So that makes it difficult. You know, as an immigration lawyer, I can help from an immigration standpoint. I can look through those stacks of papers, and I do for investor clients, and I can flag issues just as I would for my own project clients. You know, well, here's where the hairs are on this deal. But that's only from an immigration standpoint. So it's, it's not, I, I think it's hard. And, I, and the mistakes that I, I, you know, I would say that I've seen are decisions that are, are made based on, you know, in, and I think because it's so hard to, to wade through all of that. Right. I've heard, you know, in, I've heard choices being made because that's what my friends invested in. Or, you know, I, I really, you know, I trusted the, the broker who introduced the, the project to me. And, and those aren't necessarily great, you know, reasons to invest a, a lot of money and your hopes and dreams. So um, I think that that's something that the whole ecosystem can improve on is, you know, how can... How can we deliver good information that is as complete as it can be? Because, you know, as lawyers, we're also going to worry about, you know, well, is this incomplete information? And not so much, I think securities lawyers would worry about that, right? You know, they want to give full disclosure. And so I think handing somebody a 120-page PPM allows you to say that I've given them full disclosure. But... I think the reality is that it's hard for investors to absorb that. Yeah, it's so, hard for anyone, especially if they've like made their money in retail or manufacturing to look through 120-page yeah. PPM. They're just going to look at the executive summary and go, this looks great. The building's pretty. It's going to create you know, right. 500 jobs. We only need to create 300. Like, And I trust the guy who showed it to me. Yeah, It, it seems like they would benefit from having a third-party, unbiased consultant to come in and you know, dive a little deeper than just the high level. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. So before we wrap up here, um, I want to just touch base on, it sounds like from a developer standpoint, this is all a, a lot of work to raise capital. 
And I know you mentioned before that the returns that some of these EB-5 investors are looking for are lower. Can you talk a little bit about like what the typical ranges that you've seen that they're looking for in return so that we can kind of, or our audience kind of weigh the benefits versus like the, the amount of effort required? Yeah, I can totally see the sense in, in that question. Now, I think that it's going to have to be kind of an, a long-term investment, as I've said before. So I, I do think that that is how a developer will want to go at it at this point in where we are with EB-5. In terms of the returns, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm very comfortable speaking to that because that's not something that I focus on as immigration lawyer. I think in terms of the traditional, so now I'm going to speak much, much more anecdotally and outside my sphere as you know, somebody with experience in, in EB-5 immigration law. The investors themselves, I think, have been traditionally, and that could be changing because of all of the other challenges and pressures in EB-5. There might be, we might see a demand for a higher rate of return than traditionally. But traditionally, I would say it's been well under 1%, and I've seen as low as 10 basis points. So, but the, but the interest on the loan could be three, four, five percent, maybe even six. And again, you know, please take that with a ginormous grain of salt because that's not a part of the papers that, that right. I really focus on. And I think that, that that whole kind of picture is is evolving, I would say. Wow. That's that's like um I think significantly lower than than a lot of us are used to in the state side. And you brought up another thing is, are most EB-5 investments structured, and you might not be the right person to ask this, but are most EB-5 investments structured as debt or equity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is there, but for the most part, I would say in the last decade or so, the underlying deal has been debt. So the deal between the investor and the company into which he or she invests for the EB-5 green card, that deal, that relationship has always got to be an equity purchase of interest. Mm. But once the funds get down there to that entity, which we in EB-5 call the new commercial enterprise, the new commercial enterprise typically loans that pooled capital to a developing entity which is often called the job creating entity because that's the entity that will actually spend the jobs and uh, spend the money and create jobs. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. That, that was kind of unclear to us. So, Hey, look, from the very onset, I want to make sure that we're fair to you. We promised you we'd try and keep this at 40 to 45 minutes. And I think we're approaching that. Would you like to let folks know if, if they've got questions on this or if they've got a project coming up or any facet of getting involved in EB5 that is there a contact information you'd like to share? Sure. I'll give my email address. It's my name, essentially. My first name, C-A-R-O-L-Y-N at com. That's um, C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-L-E-E-P-L-L-C.com. Okay. And, and folks that are interested in following what, what you're doing, is there anywhere they can? Yeah, they can look me up on my website and they can subscribe to my newsletter. 
I have a LinkedIn. I post regularly on LinkedIn, Twitter feed, and I think that's been the extent of my social media outreach. No, that's, that's fantastic. That's impressive. That's really you got good. newsletter yeah. and Twitter and LinkedIn. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure we you. share all Your of that sweet. in the uh, show notes so people, people can follow along on the newsletter and your LinkedIn account. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Carolyn, thank you for coming on. It's been fantastic. This is a wealth of information on the EB-5 program. And thank you again. Yeah, thanks it's so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye, Carolyn. Take care. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.